Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to episode 12, well, well, episode 12 and 13 of season 2 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. I'm not going to give you the usual preamble because today's episodes aren't regular episodes. Uh, last week, we finished talking about the You're Gonna Get It album, and I have a double header for you this week. Split into two parts, episodes 12 and 13 document a fantastic conversation I have with the immensely talented Jake Thistle. Jake played a ton of Tom songs and gave me lots of insights into how Tom and other influences like Jackson Brown and Springsteen and John Prine and John Hyatt have sort of shaped the way that he approaches music. Now, in this first episode, episode 12, um, there's a lot more talk and a lot less music um, but in the second episode, in episode 13, there's way more music. Um, so most likely, I'm going to enjoy listening to the second episode more. And I think you might too, because I'm less in it. <laughs> I should also mention that um, just due to the, uh, the the technology that we use to record the episode, my audio isn't quite as crisp and clear. So I hope you'll bear with me um, through that. I, I've tried to balance everything out as much as I could. But uh, yeah, just tune in, sit back. Relax and enjoy my conversation with Jake Thistle. I think we talked about this last time, but I, I always really enjoy, uh, especially Tom, you know, when there's such a great band behind him all the time, and that's not in the room with me. I'm always trying to reimagine songs however I can. Um, but uh, this is one I've never tried on piano, but I wanted to. I especially wanted to break it out uh, for this feed, uh, just because of you know, the album you're reviewing this week, and it's going to be a good time, and this is one of my favorites off that one. And this is also the, um, this was uh, one of the first songs that I uh, was lucky enough to play with uh, a few of the Heartbreakers out in L.A. Uh, we opened with Learn and Fly, and then we kind of kicked off like the, that was, we kind of started acoustic, you know, ease everyone in, and then this was like the rock thing that we opened with, but uh, I hope you like it. Thank you. 
So it'd be like that one. I figured I'd start off with that one just because of uh, you know that you're gonna get it week, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, but in the in the episode that I did about listen to a heart, it's I said that you know Tom's obviously a rock and roller, but that it's such a perfect pop song, and he had yeah. that ability to just write melodies that. Anyway, and it's such a timeless song, right? Which is why it's still played on the radio. It's why people still love it. It's because it's perfect. Every single part of it is perfect. And it's such a strong bridge as well in that song. Drops out of the out of the memory, then gives that little bit of room to breathe, and then it comes back again. It's such a great track. Of course, yeah. Especially you know, it's it's like the when I was learning guitar, it, you know, I pretty much the first twenty songs I learned were Tom Petty songs. But this was yeah. such a great song to learn for me. It's probably like fourth or fifth song because. It's such a recognizable opening that is pretty much just one chord, really, and it doesn't change. It's one finger's lifted off and back on. So it's like, you know, it's such a recognizable, awesome pop rock riff, and it's, you know, he's able to do it so so simply, and it's that's so amazing, you know. Well, and that's the the beauty of it too is the simplicity, right? And again, as soon as you hear that first chord, within the first split second, you know exactly what song that is because it it couldn't be anything else, right? I was thinking too about the about the about the lyrics and that, and obviously the, the controversy or the well, it could have been a controversy about the record company wanted him to change cocaine to champagne. Yes, and of course Tom said, you know, well, cocaine's more expensive than champagne. But when you think <laughs> about the song sonically, or just as a singer too, like the way you sing cocaine, it's got a real hard consonant at the start of both syllables, where champagne's really soft, and I think that, that makes a huge difference. If you say champagne in that song, it just doesn't work musically. So I think that's even more important than, than anything else, right? It's got to fit musically. So, Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, not, not only, you know, I think it just, it paints a totally different picture of the character he's trying to write, yeah. you know, and it, it's just, you know, I get maybe it's the, the hard, you know, the, the cuss sounds, but it, it just makes him sound less aggressive that way. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, cocaine's got a leather jacket, champagne's got a blazer and a, a Lincoln Continental, right? It's just a different yeah, kind of person. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's very interesting because I guess you could you can make the argument that you know, those things contrast like that, but even just the sound of the syllables kind of represents, you know, what they are, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Cool, cool. So let's talk a little bit about you and your background. Um, so where were you brought up and what part of the world do you live in, for those people who don't know? Sure. Um uh, brought up and uh, still live in New Jersey, so it's um I, you know it's been a great time playing music here. It's such a great music scene, and you know it's interesting. I always say you know we we are such a you know especially musically we're such a diverse state, um, you know in terms of the music that was you know from around here. Obviously, it's a lot of Springsteen, you know Bon Jovi, Sinatra, things like that. But you know you can like for example, I've had such a great op- such great opportunities in the North Jersey. Uh, you know, region and, and playing, but even if you get down to Central, it, it's a totally different scene, but it's still so much fun. And so this summer, I spent a lot of time in like South Jersey and down the Jersey Shore. And so, you know, it, it does. I guess it sounds like I'm quoting a Springsteen song when I talk about this stuff, but you know, it, it really is just a really interesting place. And there's such a great appreciation for music uh, of all kinds. So it's been really supportive to grow up in an environment like that. When it's like I said, it's hard not to sound like a Springsteen song when you're talking about those places because. It's just it's part of American culture now, partly because Springsteen wrote such epic poems and ballads about the place, right? About the place itself and the people there. So of course it's going to sound that way. I think. Yes, exactly. It probably helps, you know. As I'm, you know, I'm so familiar with the, with the places that he's talked, a lot of the places that he's talked about. That when I start talking about, it, I think of Madame Marie, and then it's like Sandy and all these things. So you know, it, <laughs> it's very interesting, and uh, it, it's funny. I think there are a lot of things probably. You know he's so famous for writing about where he's from, uh, yeah. and when when I went down to Gainesville for a uh, for one of the birthday bashes for Tom Petty, um, I was looking around and it was all these things I recognized, and yeah. I had no idea that he wrote about where he grew up as much as Spring. I, you know it helps that I grew up around here, but even so, I just think Springsteen is just so much, you know, more well known for writing about that part of his life than I think Tom was. But I'm walking around and there's Lillian's music store. There you yeah. know, there's uh you know, the uh the dogwood trees and the and, and everything like that that he's talking Spanish moss and like you know, all these regional things that you know I don't see over here and I'm realizing, oh okay, that's why he said that. That's why he wrote that. And I, I always think that's really interesting because I look around New Jersey and I think, okay, yeah, well he's known for that and we see it. But you know, going down there, that's what I noticed too. Yeah, and there's, I think as a songwriter yourself, too, you, you pick up things like that, right? That's where you get some of those inspirations. Even if it's just a phrase on the side of a building or a street name can really give you, wait a minute, that's, 
I could definitely use that. It's very lyrical. I can definitely shoehorn that some in this. So it goes in the book, and then later on we'll pull it out and maybe we'll use that, right? Yes, exactly. Even you know, even though I am every time I write a song and I write like the Parkway in it or something about New Jersey, I'm like, oh, it sounds a little Springsteen. <laughs> let me let me see if I could tone that down a little bit so they don't think I'm trying to copy. You know, <laughs> when you do, I think you know, musically, and we'll we'll, get, we'll talk about your your album a little bit later on. But musically, you do seem to you feel a bit more West Coast than East Coast to me, just in sort of the the sensibilities and your sort of the things that you sing about tend to be a little bit more West Coast to my ear than, than East Coast. I don't know if that would be fair or if you would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally understand where that where that comes from. I, I listen to, I mean, you know, as as we've talked about, I, I've gr- pretty much I grew up with Tom Petty music. Yeah, that was like my primary. You know, I've always said they've been my favorite band since I was three when I saw them at the uh, Super Bowl show, and so they kind of I think from a young age I just kind of had that sound embedded, and then it really helped that when I was sitting down, you know, to record that album in particular, and you know, it was my first album, I didn't know what to expect. And I had to do it at home. I didn't have a full band behind me, so you know it was it was it was really tough to uh, you know this was at the very start of COVID, so I, you know I didn't even, I didn't have anyone over for it. You know I just ended up having to do all the instruments myself. So that kind of that big driving you know East Coast sound, I guess you know that like Southside Johnny Bruce Springsteen like with the horns and stuff. Like I yeah. didn't have that at all. So I I kind of used Jackson Brown as my reference for how I wanted it arranged. And that was just because, like, the Standing in the Breach album, I thought, was an interesting take on, on how, how a band sounds. There's a lot of songs that just use a shaker or just use, you know, yeah. one or two different instruments where, where a full band might use a bunch. So I think that's where that West Coast sound kind of came from, is just growing up with the petty music and that type of songwriting. And then also, you know, being influenced by Jackson and his sound, they were probably the two biggest influences on that album that came out. So when that football game broke out at the Tom Petty concert at the Super Bowl, yes. um, obviously that's the first time you heard them. But being so young, obviously you sort of your appreciation of that is more visceral. It's not as sort of intellectual. You're not going to connect with the music in the same way. Do you remember a specific moment or a song or an album that really gripped you once you were sort of listening to music a, a little bit with a bit more maturity that grabbed you and you just thought, oh, my God, this is just the best thing ever? Yeah, you know, I was a little young. I, well, I, I, I hadn't heard him. I was only two when Highway Companion came out. So I hadn't, e- that, that ha- Super Bowl show hadn't happened. Uh, Mudcrutch, I also really hadn't heard him yet. And then Mojo, I was still a little young for, but I still remember being, I was in kindergarten when that came out. And I, I still remember being very, very excited for it. And so I don't have much memory of actually opening the album, listening to it or whatever, but I, I do know that I did that. Uh, and then I would say it wasn't even necessarily a song or an album in particular that got me really excited about this music, but I would say it's the, the it was the excitement that led up to Hypnotic Eye. You know, obviously that, that album's great. I listen to it all the time. But I think what really got me paying attention was just being able to like go you know, go on the internet and see like, oh all right, single tomorrow, or oh, this is the this is the album cover work. He released that promotional video where he's like uh, playing some tracks from it, and he's like kind of crawling on that old vintage <laughs> radio, and like just seeing him like in a like that what what was it like a fedora and a trench coat or something like that, just like crawling on as like a nine year old. That was just really interesting to me. And so, you know, I would say the, the first song or the most recent song that I can remember coming out or I guess I should say the oldest song that I can remember coming out was Something Good Coming from Mojo. So I guess that song was really the first song that I listened to knowing that it was a new Tom Petty song and being very excited about. But it was the lead-up and the immediate aftermath and resolution of Hypnotic Eye, I think, that got me really excited, not just in Tom's music, but just the industry in general and, and how it all works and how exciting it is when something like that comes out. And so with Mojo then, when Mojo comes out and you hear that first single and, and we've got the build-up and the excitement, were you playing at that point? Were you already playing guitar at that point? or um, When Mojo came out, I was not. Uh, Mojo was a little before my time. Yeah. But I started playing right before Hypnotic Eye came out, like literally like a month before Hypnotic Eye came okay, out. Okay, of course, Mojo's way too old. Yeah, you've been able to play, of course. <laughs> Yeah, but I remember. I do remember being excited for it. I don't have much memory of Mojo. Um, again, I, I was in kindergarten for it, so I'm old enough to kind of 
yeah. place where that was in my life, and I remember being excited. I remember hearing something good coming, uh, and I remember watching the I Should Have Known It video. But other than that, like I, like Hypnotic Guy, I remember when it came in the mail and I ripped off like the plastic on the CD. and it, Like that one was the first one. And of course, Mud Crutch 2 is like, you know, at that point I was, you know, a good bit older and I remember and I was playing yeah. and I saw him and stuff. So, Well, I should have known it was the song that really sort of, that was the one, the catalyst for me really starting to dig back into Petty's archive. You know, and we talked about this last time, but I was sort of a, more or less a greatest hits fan and I appreciated his music but I hadn't really dug into it and a friend of mine who's an, also an excellent musician in town here Chris Klein had come over and he played that song for me and he's we're sitting watching him you know he's watching my face and, and then when it breaks into that double time at the end it's like oh yeah no no we're talking this is just absolute full-on rock and roll and then listen to the rest of Mojo and that was that then I started from Tom Petty the Heartbreakers you're gonna get it you know uh, down the torpedoes and, and then I was just hooked then I was in and then it was Wildflowers that really sort of was the final nail in my coffin when I when I listened to that and thought this isn't just a rock and roll band. This, these guys can do anything. And Tom can write any type of song. If that's the type of stuff you can put on one album and the variety and the breadth of that material, my God, that's just, that, that just blew me away. Yeah, for sure. And so do you, there was do you a documentary have... about Mojo, actually. Yes. Uh, I wa- you know, we would, you know, now I can drive. Obviously, I hadn't for about 16 years before, before I could. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it was, I was always watching concerts and things in the car, but, I, you know, I, I genuinely cannot estimate how many times I've seen, like, the Gainesville concert from 2006, yeah. the, uh, the Fenway Park 2014. So, you know, sometimes I was trying to expand my horizon. So I guess it was maybe a year or two after Mojo came out, probably still two years away from Hypnotic Eye. There was a documentary on Mojo. It was like 40 minutes. And it, the, oh, the ending credits was something good coming. Right. And I, I still remember I, we were driving. Uh, we were kind of by West Jersey at that point, And... I like I couldn't figure out what song it was, so I just lis- literally listened to every song on Mojo, and it ended up being I think it was like literally the last one in the playlist. I'm not sure where it falls on the actual track list, but in the playlist I listened to, it was last, and uh, that was the first time I really materialized hearing that song, and that kind of set me up to be excited for whatever he was going to release next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you, would do you have a favorite album? Is it something you would say like if you had to pick one? This is one of one of my questions later but i'll throw it at you now if you had to pick one you could only take one album to a to the, the desert island is the one that you could pick that's that's a really tough one um yeah. i mean i you know i'll i'll, I'll have to go with wildflowers you know i think i know it's a kind of a safe answer but i'm a big wildflowers fan yeah i'm also a fan of, I mean, I really obviously Southern Accents is a is a great one, and it, it, it's funny. I, I always bring this up too, but uh, the last DJ together is one of my favorite albums of all time. When I listen yeah. to it together individually, not all of those songs are like m- making it into like my top five favorite petty top ten favorite petty songs, but together I think it works so well. So I might not be like, for example, not that it's a bad song, but I might not be putting Joe in a playlist anytime soon on its yeah. own. But when I'm listening to that album, it's one of my favorites. I had to take Joe out of my Tom Petty playlist for a very specific reason. Um, I, I'm a distance runner, so it's, and every month I'll run a half marathon distance. The problem with that song is if it comes in at about the 15K mark, I get an adrenaline surge and I go too fast for the duration <laughs> of the song and then I can't run anymore because it just fires me up because it's such a hard acerbic, biting, brilliant song, right? So, yeah, yeah no, Last DJs, I mean, just as a concept, I think that's the closest they really came to a concept album. Obviously, Southern Accents was supposed to be, but that sort of fell apart. But Last DJ, like you said, it's like The Wall by Pink Floyd. You listen to the album, you don't you don't cherry pick from that album, really. There's a few yeah, songs on there exactly. you can, but yeah. Yeah, so um, if I were to add up in my, you know, I have a, uh, you know, when I drive, I have like a 700-song playlist. It's like however many hours. <laughs> And you never hear the same song twice for four weeks. But, <laughs> you know, if I had to add up what album has the most, probably Wildflowers. I mean, the live anthology by far, but I feel like yeah. that's cheating. You know, <laughs> I could say that one, but, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, uh, given like half answers. Hey, I didn't put any, I didn't put any limitations on that answer. You could have had, you could totally have live anthology. My favorite album then is just a thumb drive of every album. <laughs> now that is cheating. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll allow it. We'll allow it. It's your channel. We'll allow it. <clears throat> so 
in terms of sort of the enjoyment of the albums and the songs, I know there's certain songs that if you're just sitting around and you're not prepping for a live stream or you're not sort of learning a new song, is there a song that you sort of always go back to if you're just sitting there noodling and you just want to play, you just want to sing? Is there a song that is, is there sort of a default that you go to that you start with? Yeah. Um, it, well, it's funny. A uh, couple things. Uh, when I'm at when I'm at the piano, it is tough. There's a few songs. I'm not exactly sure why, but I, I fall into these patterns on the piano. And so basically, no matter what piano, whether it's at like a guitar store or my school here, yep. I cannot sit down without going a little bit into uh, Summer Highland Falls by Billy Joel or Late for the Sky or Blue Sunday. The, okay. uh, the... yep. For whatever reason, I'm doing that lick all the time. So if you want to hear that one, I'm sitting at the piano. So Yeah, yeah go ahead. Here. I'll yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Let's do it. I am sitting at the piano, so I promise that every time I sit here, I play it. So I'll, I'll prove my point. But, uh... Perfect. about that song is that it's not long enough <laughs> could stretch it but then you know i suppose it's that thing of well those are the lyrics that's the idea there it's done right so <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah sometimes i just loop it when i'm when i'm not playing in front of the camera okay yeah. i'm gonna make this a four minute song now you know when you can improvise too around the around the melody and you know for sure. exactly yeah so you started um, playing one oh, more uh, one other the other half of your question um when I, for whatever reason, when I'm when I'm testing out a guitar that I think I'm going to buy or whatever, uh, especially electrics, I can't take it out of the store without playing "Crawling Back to You." I don't know why. Just testing that kind of clean electric sound is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's like my go-to song for that. But anyway, those are like the two petty songs. For whatever reason, on piano or guitar, respectively, I can't figure out how to sit down and not play those tunes. And is that a pass fail for a guitar? Then if it doesn't, if "Crawling Back to You" doesn't sound good on that guitar, that goes back it's on gone. the wall. It's gone. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, so you started playing then about eight, nine years old. Was that you started? That's when you started. Yeah, nine. Bit nine. Yeah. I, I got and a so guitar we- um, rel- uh, about a 
two months after my ninth birthday. Yeah. Uh, and then about four months after that, I start, I actually picked it up and started learning. And when was the first YouTube video? That I posted? Yeah. Was, uh, that would have been the Christmas I started playing. I, the only reason that YouTube channel was created was because uh, my parents always really enjoyed doing creative cards. You know, having yeah. me, like when I was like a literal baby, they had me like dress up like a detective. And, I was, like, <laughs> and you know, uh, and so when it got to like nine or ten, it's a little less cute for my taste. Yeah. They would agree differently. But anyway, uh, they were like, all right, well, you know, you've been playing guitar for five months or whatever. Let's do a guitar themed one. <laughs> so I wrote a Christmas song. Yeah. I'm not going to play it. It's no, I don't think it's <laughs> up on my YouTube anymore. Um, and that YouTube channel was literally created just to post that video so we could put a little barcode link on the card to scan with your phone. Um, so that was my first was video. So cool. probably just like November 29th or something, however long it took us to mail out the cards. And then my first, and I think this video is still up, which I, I shouldn't, you know, is learning to fly was me standing in front of the Christmas tree. Because that, you know, I had learned I Won't Back Down. That was the first song I learned. Second song I learned was American Girl. Third was Free Falling. But <laughs> Learning to Fly was like the first song that actually didn't sound like god-awful. Right. It, you know, it's on acoustic, and I didn't need a plug-in for it. And so, I mean, it, I, it's by no means, uh, you know, an excellent rendition, but I'm, I could make out some of the chords, you know. So that was the first song we actually posted, uh, other than that little Christmas card thing we did. Yeah, but it's totally adorable too, though. I mean, obviously for you, not, not so much for you, because obviously we never want to look back on what we did even two years ago, never mind five or six. But for your parents, that's something there that they're going to treasure forever. And that is definitely coming out at your wedding, right? You know that for sure, right? That's getting played Probably. at your wedding. Probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't, you know, I don't mind watching that video because I can kind of distance myself from the reality and just say, okay, look, it was at this yeah. point, it was, uh, you know, eight years ago. It's the videos from two or three years ago, or even in some cases six, seven months ago. And I'm like, ooh, I would, I would do that better. The seven years, six years, I can kind of distance myself and just say, okay, that's how I played it back then. I didn't know any better. It's yeah. the one year ago, two years ago. I'm like, oh no. You know? <laughs> um, so, when did you transition? Then, obviously, sort of playing for the camera and, and getting that confidence to just play in front of your, your folks and everything is one thing. But then transitioning to a stage and playing in front of other people, what was that process and when did you start doing that? Uh, I played my first gig. Um, it was a week to the day, I think, or almost to the day of my 10th birthday. So I had been playing for about seven months at that point. This is For a timeline, this is about two months after the Learning to Fly Christmas Tree video that is like right. the first one on my YouTube. Um, and it was an open mic night. A, uh, a friend of my parents... Uh, knew of that was happening and so we went over and I did three songs and I opened first song I ever played live was You Wreck Me so wow. uh, and, and it was a good time but uh, I, I, you know, I loved it from the beginning and so I would just keep going to them and eventually that kind of turned into a paying gig with uh, uh, the guy that ran it and you know just from there I started posting more playing more and I, I just sped up since then and so was that something then the, the first time you sort of up on stage in front of people with a guitar and it's just you did that feel natural right off the bat or was it, were you sort of stage fright at all or were not nerves or was it, was that pretty easy for you? No, I, it was, it was very easy for me. It felt, I mean, I, I was, you know, everyone was very nice. It seemed like, and you know, I, even back then I looking back, especially I have the attitude of just like, well, I was a nine year old who had only been playing for a couple months. So either I was surprisingly not the worst or right. I was the worst, but I was still cute enough where it was okay. You know, so there's really nothing to lose. Um, but I remember having a very good time. Um, you know, obviously, I think I sound a little better now, but all things considered, I think it went pretty well. Um, and uh, no, I don't remember being nervous at all. I really haven't been since. Um, it's just something I really love to do. So, you know, I get far more nervous, uh, you know, I guess doing day-to-day -day things, you know, tests in school or whatever than I would ever, you know. Right, right. Up, you know, with some of my musical heroes or something like that. It's just, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for it that I don't really have time to even think about being nervous about it. Well, we talked, I think some part of that maybe comes into one of the things we talked about last time was about practicing. And you said that you don't really practice, you play. And there is a distinction between the two things, right? Practice has that feeling that oh, I've got to do this now. I've got to practice to for some end. Whereas if you're just playing because you love doing it, that's an entirely different thing. So if you have that, 
that grounding that, well, I'm, I'm just up here doing what I love in front of, and there just happens to be people here. I could see how that maybe loosens you up a little bit. But I think still, I would say that it's unusual to find someone so young who does have that confidence. I, I don't see that. You don't see that very often. Um, so genetically, or, or you, you have a gift that sort of allows you to do that uh, effortlessly, I would say. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I spent a good six years before I started playing just really loving music. I think that really helped me kind of kind of drive my playing, especially when I was younger. You know, coming up, you know, learning guitar at eight or nine or ten is, I think, a relatively common age for people to start. So, at you know, when I started, it was around the same time, you know, one or two of my friends would start, you know, not that they're, they're not really playing now, but, you know, I would always be asked by their parents, like, you know, oh, you're kind of like making those chords quicker than them. You're, 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 you know, you're just, you're a little smoother at, at some of the playing than them. How much do you practice a day? You know, because they're, they're practicing hour and a half with their book every day. Or yeah. whatever. And I think it just, the thing that helped me the most was, I mean, definitely not the advice that a technical classically trained guitarist would say, but just learning off YouTube instead of from a book for me really helped because I had already memorize those songs to my core you know even yeah. even though i was only nine having listened to them since i was three won't back down i knew like the back of my hand before i knew how to translate that to guitar so being able to sit there once i can start to kind of hear that it didn't feel like practice because it's just i'm playing my favorite songs even if i didn't know it yet well that's a and that's the traits of a musician though too right it's like if you can hear if you well, first of all, you need an ear. You have to be able to hear if something's in tune or in the right key or whatever. But understanding the structure of the song and if you can just fit the the cloth of the chords around the framework skeleton of the of the song itself, just having that sort of that grounded knowledge of, well, I know exactly where the song goes now. I know when the bridge comes in. I know when the key changes. I know when the outro is. I know when to finish. If you've got that in advance, now all you do is plug in the chords. It would certainly make it a little bit easier, right? Yeah, for sure. And that, that helped especially, you know, once I graduated from watching uh, having to watch a youtube video to learn every song i kind of graduated to just having to look at chord charts yeah and so having already known the song for you know those chord charts are not always very accurate some some of them are great a lot of them aren't you know yeah. so i'm able to sit there and go okay well that's definitely not what the record is so i might not know immediately what the record is playing but i was lucky enough to know the song well enough to kind of sit there and go yeah, but that's not how he's doing it and so sometimes i like the chord chart better and i just play that sometimes i, I want to do the record version so you know, now I mainly learn by ear. I don't have to, you know, look at chord charts as as closely. But especially at that time, I was very always very grateful for having kind of internalized that song before I knew how to play it. Well, you just you touched on there too that even the live versions. I know that sometimes when you're when you put in, especially a Tom Petty song because I know those songs so well too. You'll throw in little phrasings and you'll you'll be singing it the way he sings it live. It's not the way he sings it on the album. But it's the way he always sings it live. And that's for the fans. He's always like, okay, yeah, this kid's the real deal. This guy's a real Tom Petty fan. He's not just parroting the words out, right? So, thank you. You know, I love basically any if there's a live version like on the on the anthology or something of any of his songs. Pretty much, that's the version I listen to the most. I mean, yeah. his records always sound great. He was such a great studio musician, but you know. I think especially too, you know, you can hear his voice, you know, change as he got older as, as everyone's did. So maybe, maybe it's because I grew up with that kind of like Tom Petty in, in his fifties, in his sixties. Maybe right. that's why I gravitate more naturally to that voice, you know, that I hear. But like, to me, clear difference between hearing him sing like American Girl in 76 versus hearing him sing it at the Hollywood Bowl, yep. you know, uh, and I can... That's something, you know, I used to play, uh, you know, with my parents a lot. They'd be impressed. I, they, could, I, they would play like a live version. I could tell them I, I'd try to guess like the decade. Like that is like an 80s Tom Petty voice. Or like, no, 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 that's a Wildflowers Tom Petty voice. And they would always yeah. be impressed. But I, I feel like I, you know, I kind of gravitate more towards the later Tom Petty. Perhaps it's just because I grew up and that's who he was. He yeah. was the, the, the voice of uh, authority in rock and roll, the senior with the beard and the hair. You know, that's, that's, who, that's who Tom Petty is to me. And I yeah. think it's very interesting because I know to a lot of people, he's like the, the blonde with the aviator glasses and like the flying V guitar. But, yeah. you know, that's like a foreign world to me in a lot of ways. No, and everyone's – it's dead right because every artist who goes who has that longevity and sticks around for so long, you, depending on what your entry point is to their catalog and then your experience with them, you're definitely going to – that first association typically tends to be the strongest one, right? And so for me, it was like the first time I ever really heard Tom Petty would have been Full Moon Fever. 
So it would have been free fall and it would have been, you know, walk back down. It would have been those songs. So that era, Tom Petty, the very slick kind of cool guy on MTV, that was my Tom Petty. That was what I grew up with. And so finding out there was this, you know, and, and you think that in later, in the later years, he wasn't as um, active on stage because he was older and he couldn't move around. Yeah. So then going back and watching the old videos and watching him running around like a maniac and jumping in the air and knee sliding, it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize he was that, you know, I didn't realize he was that animated on stage. It's super cool. Yeah, for sure. And there's a great website, I can't remember the name of it now, um, that has a whole bunch of, um, I think it's Live Petty, it's called. And they have a bunch of, it's none of the um, official release stuff, they don't touch any copyrighted stuff, but they've got just masses and masses and masses of audio and video. So you go back and watch some of those old videos, and then you watch, like I said, that evolution of playing style, of songwriting style, vocal style, delivery, just professionalism, the way they sort of the, the show built and the, and the way the musicians interacted, watching that development of a, of a band like that is, as a musician is, is really interesting. And as I was saying to um, a previous guest, Dallas Helica, we were talking about Hypnotic Eye, which you touched on. And I think the, the, the very sort of saddest thing about Tom passing away was Hypnotic Eye was not the work of a band who was just sort of wrapping up their career and getting ready to go on a greatest hit store for the next 20 years. This that was a band still in the ascendancy. That's still some yeah. of his some of his sharpest, most brilliant songwriting is on that album. And so, you know, whether or not he would have toured anymore in the future, creatively, he still had he still had everything, right? So Of course, yeah. I mean, that was not only a fresh sound for the Heartbreakers, but that was just a fresh sound in general. Like yeah. that was such a fun album to listen to. And you know, I, a lot of times I wish I had been a little older and a little more familiar with with the music when that came out because I think I would have appreciated it a lot more because like I said before that's really the first one I can totally remember being released and really I guess yeah. that means I can only really totally remember two of his albums being released but yeah I think it, like if that were to come out now I think that was like the coolest thing ever to hear him in that environment especially because we were coming up you know Mojo was very kind of rock blues as well but you know we were still kind of coming off that you know you know that kind of highway companion more Americana yeah. You know, uh, even uh, the last DJ was kind of Americana, you yeah. know, in a certain sense, and, and Echo for that matter. So this was like kind of a, a a shift for them. And I think now, I mean, I liked it then, but now I think I could really appreciate that and, and realize how cool that actually was to be experiencing. Well, I think to it, part of that as well, I always think is the, when, you know, before Mojo, Echo was the last sort of the breakup. That was the last part of that breakup period in his life with um you know wildflowers she's the one and echo they're really that's that's a three set for me and obviously rick rubin produced all three so they sound they sound quite similar but that's three albums that fit together as a three and i think after that and with dana coming into his life you get the sense on the last three albums that they're a lot more the band's more relaxed and now they're yeah. really just they're really just doing it because they want to play and they want to have fun and so they record mojo you know out at the, the their little hideaway in LA. And so it's that sort of sense of, you know what, screw it. We're going to be able to sell records. We're Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. The record company will take what we give them. We, we've earned that right now. So let's just have fun and play music that we really enjoy. And you really get that sense of fun, I think, from those last three albums. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that's why I'm, I'm very grateful in a lot of ways to be kind of experience these artists for the first time when they're in their later careers. And the, the other, another one I can really think of is I'm a huge John Hyatt fan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's been great for as long as he's been out. He's had a career in relatively equal length to the Heartbreakers, but he didn't really hit, you know, any sort of... He didn't hit his biggest success until, like, the Full Moon Fever era. You know, so yep. it's crazy to think about, but he's really found his sound in his last, you know, 25 years. You know, Walk On was, like the album that I personally I think kind of defined the rest of his sound and that was 95. So it's right. interesting, you know, for Tom, you know, he stayed so true to his sound, you know, in, in, in a totally different way than John. But I think in a lot of ways they kind of, you know, being, in, and of course he just put, he's nominated for a Grammy this year. He just put out an album last year. So he, you know, he's still going, but I think, you know, he is, you know, more towards the end of his career. And so for Tom and him at the end of their careers, it, they kind of, kind of closed out and, almost a similar way, like like still very fresh, but still super true to how they've always been doing it. And I think that kind of, that layer of true to how they've always been doing it over the still fresh is like such a perfect combination that we're seeing with, you know, we saw with Tom. And even that Mud Crutch too, I thought, you know, 
Especially yeah. bringing back the old songs that we hadn't heard since like the playback whatever from 70 whatever. Um, I, just hearing how he evolved and how he, like on, on trailer, there's that extra verse. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, not yeah. on playback. Yeah. That is on the album and I think it's such a good verse, you know. Well, it's, it's so rare too. You know, like I said, I was talking, when we talk, talking about Hypnotic Eye and sort of artists who are at that stage of the careers. It is rare that they do manage to stay fresh somehow and but yet still, still maintain their sound. And I think I, I always think with, and I'm, hopefully there's not too many real hardcore Springsteen fans. I think that's where Springsteen loses me a little bit. Where his last sort of 10, 15 years, I think he's been a bit more comfortable and he's, he's kind of stayed within, he's colored within the lines a little bit more than Tom Petty or John Hyatt did, or even Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown's latest album is Great, absolutely yeah. just sublime, it's funny, right? Jackson is competing with John Hyatt for Best yes. Americana Grammy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, you know. <laughs> You know, who do you vote for? <laughs> I know, you know, but I understand what you're saying about Springsteen. Uh, you know, I I loved um, Western Stars. I thought I thought that was super super cool. Yep. I, I literally is one of my favorite Springsteen albums of all time. Like it's grown on me immensely, and I listen to it all the time. But you know, like Letter to You, I really liked. But you know, I know like if I was a priest and Janie needs a shooter, were two old songs he brought back. Yeah. And when I listened to the album all the way through for the first time. Like, I could hear, I was listening, I said, these sound like old Springsteen songs. These don't, you know, I could tell that difference. But, you know, it, having not heard anything, putting Refugee, if you slid right. that on to Hypnotic Eye, I think like, oh, wow, that's a cool sound. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, I, I wouldn't necessarily, but with Bruce, and again, I, I loved Ghosts, you know, See You in My Dreams. They're, you know, those new songs are great songs, but there's something, maybe it's like an urgency about, the, the the other songs where I was thinking like, no, but this sounds like seventies Bruce. This this sounds like right. There's just there's like something above the song that just was saying like this is an old song. This is not something he wrote at seventy. You know something. Yeah, and I should say too that I do love Bruce. I'm not I'm not I absolutely not yeah, dissing Bruce Springsteen at all. So yeah, <laughs> I mean the guy's written how many freaking great songs? Some of the great songs in the American the new American songbook, right? So I'm not absolutely not dissing Bruce Springsteen. So just to, just to make that clear before I get any DMs. So. Um, <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about a little bit, um, and we'll get another song maybe in, in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about um, the opportunities that you had to go down and play with the Heartbreakers, because that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's just dream come true stuff. Obviously, for a kid who grew yes. up listening to Tom Petty and absorbing all this music and obsessing over it, as clearly you have done your whole life, what was that process like? How did that co opportunity come about, first and foremost? You know, I mean, it was totally unbelievable, you know, just to, uh, I've learned so much from watching them. So getting to play with some of them and, and, and you know, I've met, um, I, ha I never got to meet Tom, but I, I met all the Heartbreakers and they're all just, they're such cool people. Yeah. Like, that's the only way I can describe it. Like they're not, I mean, they're rock stars, but there's like a coolness to it that I can't describe. And, uh, you know, so I guess it, you know, it really started just, you know, posting on, you know, Facebook and things like that. I kind of, you know, built yeah. a little bit of a, a base that, that was nice enough to like me and, and take an interest and uh, in addition, I do a lot of work for Rock the Dogs, which is Mike Campbell's charity. Um, uh, it's a, a part of Tazzy Fund, which is uh, such a such a great organization. Out, it's an animal rescue charity in, in kind of the LA area. But um, every once in a while, the, the, you know, a dog will be adopted around here. I, you know, one time I, I helped, uh, you, you know, kind of survey a house, make sure it was okay for the dog and things like that. Oh, cool! Uh, but you know, when I can't physically, literally help, because a lot of it's on the other side of the country, I just try to do these, these fees and things. So he kind of knew me through that, Mike. Um, and uh, independently, uh, for Christmas one year, uh, I got a letter, in, like a package in the mail, and it, it said, To Jake from Santa, and it had Tom Petty wrapped in paper. And I didn't know. It said, Don't open till Christmas. So being the 11-year-old <laughs> I was, I ripped it open immediately. But, uh, I mean, it was just, it, it was so cool. And uh, it ended up being uh, a letter from his manager. Uh, here, hold on. I have it right here. Awesome. It was a letter from his manager and a signed copy of Mojo. Uh, right on, yeah. It. And, uh, and uh, two front row tickets to his uh, show at the Prudential Center, which ended up being the last tour. Um, and so I got to go, and when, I found, and when Mike found out that I was going to be there, uh, he uh, sent uh, someone in, and I, I got to uh, go back and meet um, uh, all, all the Heartbreakers. Uh, again, I didn't get to meet Tom, but I got to meet all the Heartbreakers, and you know, Joe Walsh was opening, so he kind of... <laughs> Walked, you know, walked down uh, the stage next to me, and it, it was just so cool. I got to watch some from the side of the stage, right by the steps, and then I went around to the seats, and it, it was such a great time. 
And uh, they were all just so nice and so cool. And, um, you know, in the meantime, I'd still been playing a lot. And when we ended up doing a, uh, a, a thing down in Gainesville, I was invited, which was very nice. And I got to meet some of his family. Uh, his brother Bruce is an inc- and, and his wife Beth, they're, they're incredibly uh, nice family. And yeah. at this point, Tom had already passed. And so, you know, it was uh, obviously tough for all of them to be there with all the fans and listening to the music for a whole weekend. But they were, yeah. you know, they were great. And then when they started to put something together in L.A., um, there's a, I have a friend in New York and a friend out in uh, the San Diego area, and they, they both were kind of coming together to put this, uh, you know, kind of concert uh, and get it going. And, and I was kind of a mutual name that popped up, and they ended up hiring me to go out. And, uh, you know, uh, so out there of the Heartbreakers I played with, it was Ron and uh, Steve, and they yeah. were both just like the coolest people ever, the nicest people ever. And there's yeah. so many really talented musicians out there. They, the Orbison Brothers and Carmen Vandenberg and Earl Slick and just like Jim Keltner, you know. I mean, it was amazing. You know, it'd be amazing to play with either of them, but the fact that I, I you know, everyone, you know, in the audience, you know, on, on like Jim Keltner and Steve Ferroni playing at the same time on two different kits behind you, like there is no way anyone's falling out of time on that stage. No, you no. Know? And if they are, they better have like a They very, make the metronome sound like it's, yeah. it's skipping a beat. You know, I mean, it was amazing. Um, and, and again, it was just such... I mean, it was, you know, obviously cool in every aspect, but just I was so incredibly grateful to just be able to absorb all of that knowledge just from the stage. Yeah. And, and also the literal knowledge, like, they would give me advice and things like that. Ron still, he knows... Um, he played a beautiful lap steel solo on Walls, uh, a very talented uh, musician out in that area, right. uh, Chris Torres, uh, sang Walls, and Ron came out on a lap steel and, and played some stuff. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't been too exposed. So I ended up getting the same lap steel, and I played sometimes. And so every <laughs> once in a while, he'll shoot me over a text and just like, hey, I, I was playing around the lap steel, and I noticed this. I thought it might come in handy for you. And so like literally passing down knowledge, but even just being able to play on stage with them, it just... It helped me improve in, in such a way, I can't even describe it, but I've learned so much from watching them and playing with, with them was just incredible. Yeah, and I think we always come back to that, and I think one of the things that, apart from the music, one of the things that really sort of keeps Tom Petty's fan base as rabid as it is, is they were so cool. So, you know, like you said, Ron Blair doesn't doesn't need to be sending you texts. He, he, you know, he, that interaction's happened. Yeah, You've been on stage and everything else. But he's just such a cool guy that he's, oh, yeah, Jake, Jake, this one might, he might like this. And so and the same thing with Steve Ferroni, right? When you listen to him talk, yeah. I remember the bit in the Somewhere You Feel Free um, video that came out in, in October. When you see him walk into the studio with just that big grin, you can almost feel the tension just drift out of the room because how could you be... How could he be anxious or nervous around that kind of energy? Right? Because he's just so positive and happy and, and friendly. Yeah. And it's just very, like I said, very, very cool. Yeah, he is like the funniest person. Like, he's right. exactly how you'd picture. Like, you know, it, when we were out there, we had um, uh, Jeff Slate. Um, is a, he, He's based in New York, so I play with him, you know, here on the East Coast. But he uh, he's a writer for Rolling Stone and Esquire and, uh, yeah. you know, NBC Think and, and things like that. Uh, but he plays a lot of music, too. He's good friends with, like, uh, Earl Slick who was, uh, you know, out there with us, and Jesse Mallon, who we brought over. And, and so he was kind of in charge of running that show, and there was a ton of moving parts, so yeah. it, it was not an easy job. So the set list was, like, defined. We only had two rehearsals. My plane <laughs> was late, so I missed the first one. You know, uh, Chris Stills, Stephen Stills' son, he missed the second one, so, like, we don't know who's... We, like, I didn't even meet some of the people that were playing. There were so many people. So everyone knew that you do exactly what was rehearsed because he has such a busy yeah. job. He's got to stay on stage the whole time uh, to the point where I wanted to do harmonica on walls. And even yeah. that he was like, ah, oh, we didn't try it in rehearsal. Okay. Yeah. You can do it. But like, I don't know how this is going to go. And it's harmonica, you know, it's like, so, you know, yeah. very stressed. Everything goes exactly how it should. And so we're sitting up there. I forgot who was on stage and Steve is just going, what? no one's doing, you don't know how it feels. And I was like, no, I guess not. And he goes, no, no, no. We need to do You Don't Know How It Feels. Get the harmonica and get the guitar. And he found Ron. And he goes, you remember when we did that? Let's just do that. And so we kind of just followed him. We marched down these stairs like a, like a cartoon. And he's sitting on the side of the stage. And he's going, you don't know how it feels. And Jeff's like, what? What? No, no, no. And so he just marches on stage. And he sang it. Oh, man, that's awesome. And I have to say. 
I mean, he sounded great for Steve. There's a, there's, I'm sure a video on my page somewhere. He sat, he sang it the way you'd expect Steve Ferroni. To sing it. <laughs> right, and yeah. it was just the funniest thing in the world. It was just, Jeff is looking like, what is going on? You know, yeah. it was such a great time, but, uh, that's just what he's like. You know, he's just such a funny guy, yeah. such a cool guy. Both of them are, but you know, it was, it was such a great time. What a great, great drummer too. I think, and I think massively underrated, you know, for mm-hmm. people outside, I mean, drummers know who Steve Ferroni is. And same with Keltner, you know, if you, if you give most um, young people these days those two names, they're not going to have a clue who you're talking about. But we're talking about two of the all-time greatest session drummers in the history of rock and roll, certainly in America, oh, yeah. right? And you've got both of, both of those guys behind you playing a gig at, what, 15 years old? Yeah, something like that. 16, that's just 56. Yeah, I mean, that's 15, just, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy. And do you, so do you ever, do you ever look back and think about that? Or do you sort of... Oh yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'll sit here. You know, I'll be playing something like, "Oh wait, hold on." I have, you know, oh, that that was the best part. Was you know, these are songs that I've played as a fan for so long. Yeah. So if I was confused on something, you know, th- there's plenty of songs where I'm like, "What's it? you know?" I could just ask, and that was what was so cool. Um, you know, I I did a thing. Uh, I, I don't. Remember, it might have been for school, and it was a Tom Petty song, and and I was overdubbing a lot of instruments on it and I was doing right. the bass part and I didn't ask him but I you know I it was so cool that in the back of my mind I could think okay but if I can't figure this out I know the guy that did it and I know the guy that's done it for 40 years in front of you know millions of people over that time so worse comes to worse I'm definitely going to be able to figure out this bass part one way or another you know yeah. so I didn't end up bothering with it bothering him with it because I could figure it out but it was so cool that in the back of my head that that was a possibility even, you know. No, it's a luxury that a few thing. people have. <laughs> yeah, I always, I text them every Super Bowl. You know, that's what we always talk about is because right. they know that that's the first time I saw them. You know, Steve always has a really funny comment about whatever the Super Bowl show is that year. Yeah. I remember the year well, it was – the first year I texted him during the Super Bowl was during the uh, Shakira Super Bowl. <laughs> right, it's okay. And uh, I said uh, – you know, Steve, it's it's crazy. You know, I, I'm watching the halftime show. It's not, you know, it's nothing like the Heartbreaker show. But I always think of you guys every year. I hope it's a great one. I never expect, you know, they always reply back. I never expect them to. Yeah. And so I sent that to him and Ron, and you know, Ron. Oh yeah, man. You know, Ron's just like such a San Diego cool guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. You know, that was wild. You know, it was such a great time. <laughs> you know, so great to see you. Get back out here soon. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Steve just replies back like, uh, "I asked if I could shake my ass as much as secure. They wouldn't let me do it, so I don't know what changed." You know. <laughs> oh man, it's so funny when you go through. You know, you, you and I, I hate looking at them, and I don't know why I do, but I always do. But the lists of the top X number of whatever it is, right, and the top Super Bowl performances, and I'm always scrolling. I'm like, wait a minute, where's Petty? Where's Petty? Why are we not? We're not in the top five, really. We're not in the top. We're putting that above Tom Petty. And I think one of the reasons maybe is because they actually played bloody live. They played the songs. They didn't just mime to backing tracks to make it sound absolutely perfect as much. You know what I mean? So yeah. And, and same with Prince when Prince played and he played, you know, played in the rain. Like get real artists out there. Get get someone with a guitar out there for God's sake. It's the big American spectacle. You should have rock and roll in there. It should be part of it to me. But. Of course, yeah. But being an English Canadian, maybe I don't understand you know, it. When they were, you know, they. I mean, I know it was only four songs, but they headlined. It was them. Yes. You know, yeah, and absolutely. same thing with, with when you know McCartney did it and Springsteen did it, and you know. These yeah. days, I know it's like usually three or four acts, and I guess that that does make sense in a lot of ways, you know, for you know marketing, you know, to their audience. But I yeah. thought it was cool that, that you know they went out there, they did four greatest hits, you know, all Absolutely. you know, Heartbreakers, McCartney, and all those guys. And I think it's just it was less frantic, and I think, I, you know, it was really cool to watch. It was equally, I mean, it was the same speed, but it was less frantic than these days. Yeah, you know, they they still had a cut a lot of verses out of their songs, yep. you know, you know, cut guitar solos and you could see him counting off really quick and, you know, between the songs, but which must've been tough for him. Cause you know, seeing yeah. him live, it was always like these long stories and it was always so cool. So that must've been interesting for him, but you know, it just seems these days like frantic is just, okay, he's doing this and then he's doing this and this is a different song. And, and I guess that's cool in its own right, but I've always really enjoyed that kind of linear thing you know yeah it's more of a spectacle now than a performance i think right that's 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 how i would categorize that where you've got prince or mccartney or even the chili peps or something like that that's a performance whereas now it's more about the spectacle and Katy perry comes in on that huge 
horse or unicorn or whatever the hell it was. It was super cool. I mean, it looks great, but it's not about the music anymore. It's not about the performance, which maybe that's okay. I, I mean, I guess, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that long ago that, that the Heartbreakers played, but I guess it, it, it was uh, almost 15 years ago now. Yeah, right? it's a while ago now, yeah. So, like, in, in that time, you know, a lot has changed just with how news carries. So, I guess the ones that happen now, like, I mean, even though Heartbreakers is my favorite by far, I know that the four-act, you know, dancing one trends quicker on Twitter. That's just of the course. reality, you know. So, yeah. I, you know, it makes sense that they do that. But I always thought it was interesting to, you know, have the Super Bowl stuff. Well, that leads into well, like an interesting question that I have for you, and then I'll, I'll get you to play another song maybe uh, so we don't sure. bore people half to death because we're nerding <laughs> out here. But I, I do find it interesting that, you know, you know, I, was, I told you this last time. The first time I saw your your face pop up on my feed, and, and it's Tom Penny. I'm like, okay, well, what I got here? We've got a good a good looking young lad with a guitar. This is going to be either a Bieber clone or an Ed Sheeran clone. Those are your two options, it seems these days, with it with a kid with a guitar. So I'll put it on. Oh no, very surprising, isn't? But as you say, you're picking music um, to listen to and music to write and record that isn't main what you would call mainstream, right? It's not sort of your poppy. It's not got a, a drum drum loop in there or whatever else it is mm-hmm. um has there ever been a temptation to try to write something or try to cover something in that direction or is it sort of is that so alien to you that you don't feel that music that it's just never even entered the the conversation in your head um well you know i always you know I, I, before anything I, I just try to cover songs uh, and write songs that i have fun playing okay uh, and i also try to know my audience to the best of my ability so you know having Originally, being when I didn't have an audience, I played whatever I wanted. Yeah. I still do, but you know what I whatever I wanted was Tom Petty, John Hyatt, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so I've been lucky enough to kind of just accumulate that audience from posting in the Facebook groups and 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 getting recommended from other fans who liked me and they say it to their friends or whatever. So that's why I'm always happy to continue doing it. So on you know on social media stuff and my live gigs, people who come to see me, that's what I'm doing is just trying to play to my audience. So you know. It's not necessarily, I think, a temptation to go mainstream or, or stay kind of on you know the path of what I listen to. I think it's just trying to know my audience. You know, for for school, uh, for example, I am the uh, I'm the choir president. So, okay, like, earlier in the year we put on like this kind of like open mic night thing, and I ran sound for it. But I ended up going up at the end and I played, and I I figured okay, well I know my audience for this too. They're not. You know, I learned a Harry. I learned two Harry Styles songs, and I did them, and, P, and P, the okay. audience loved them. And you know, I don't listen to him very consistently, but I, you know, I've liked what I heard. I know that he he writes stuff. You know, I mean, I think you know, these days, I think there's a lot of, you know, because we talk a lot about that like Bieber era, which I guess was almost 15 years ago now, something like that. He was like a little before my time of listening to music. I guess not my time because I was already listening to music, but you know, like that that yeah. my generation. Uh, you know, of that kind of like pop star, weird, you know, p- produced thing. And I think that kind of is still affecting how like younger artists are looked at today. I don't know if that's always still the case, though. You know, like I said, I- I've never seen, I'll use him as another example just because I-, I know of him better than other musicians. But like Harry Styles, like I know he, you know, he really plays instruments. Yeah. I, I know he's really writing songs. And so even though I'm not listening to him as consistently as I am the artist that I have, you know, albums of over here or, or my covers i still you know i i appreciate what he does and i still like a lot of his songs you know so it, i think it just has to do with more of playing what i enjoy and knowing my audience and yeah. i've been really lucky enough where that's been the same thing um you know whether it's you know here on facebook where i, I know there's a lot of petty springsteen yep. prime you know those types of fans i love playing those songs and, and i'm very grateful people listen to my originals i love playing my originals and writing um but you know when i'm in school and i know there's a bunch of you know, 14 to 18 year olds who don't know what any of that is. I also can enjoy playing stuff like that too. So it's not necessarily, I think a temptation of, but just a want to kind of do what makes other people happy while still making me happy. Well, I think that is. Hey, thanks for getting to this point. Uh, the second half of my conversation with Jake uh, will thankfully contain a lot more music. Jake is, in my opinion, the best interpreter of Tom Petty's music on the planet right now, 
and we really get a lot more music in the second half. So until we meet again, almost immediately, do the things I always ask you to do.